And once you can do that, that's that's always the first step with understanding Bitcoin. You know, if I'm at a Christmas party and you know somebody asks me, you know, I get it happen a ton this year when the Bitcoin conversations come up. And I don't even really end up talking much about Bitcoin to them. You know, I'll just say, well, look, like here, here's what's going on in the financial world and here's how our banking system works and here's what's happening with wealth inequality and here's what's happening to your property rights and here's what government spending is. And once you see all that picture, it's kind of like, now here's a form of money that nobody controls. And then it clicks a lot easier for people. So it's really important, I think, to like define the problem very clearly up front. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Eric Yates. Eric, welcome. What up, Joe? Great to have you. Um, I don't Have you been on the, the Blockware Podcast before? Did Will ever have you on? I can't remember. Nah, it's my first time. Nice. Just. Yeah, I know. You've been on What Bitcoin Did it, at least once, probably twice, I think. Great conversations. Yeah, twice. Nice. And definitely excited to have you on here. I think this would be a, a great conversation. Um, for those that don't already know you, you wrote a book called The Seventh Property. I think like quickly diving into that, like what is The Seventh Property and why is it important? Yeah, so you know when I was getting into, this was kind of back towards uh, 2020-ish, um, you know when I was first diving into this industry, I just spent some time getting as deep as I could. And, you know, I realized quickly that I, I didn't really find any resources. And, you know, granted, back then there was a different set of books that were available. I mean, pretty much everybody was reading like the Bitcoin standard, um, which is, you know, pretty comparable to what my book is like. But, you know, I, I didn't think that there was a really good resource that was very holistic with how they were explaining Bitcoin. There's so many different aspects that you have to cover. And like, you know, Bitcoin standard covers monetary history for the majority of the book. And that's a really important aspect of this. But, you know, what my intention with the book was to, you know, effectively write something that was the book I wish I'd been given when I first got into all this. Because I wrote off Bitcoin for a pretty long period of time. And, you know, a lot of that was based in my traditional finance education. I'm a CFA and a lot of the thinking around, you know, those areas of finance kind of prevented me from understanding, um, you know, what the value proposition of Bitcoin was. And, you know, I was a finance and economics major in college. I got my CFA and like, you know, going through all that, it's like I didn't ever learn what money was. I remember in one of my classes, we went over the functions of money, which was like a pretty cursory review for a period of time. Um, it was like very brief and then just moved on. But like other than that, I didn't understand much of it at all. So the whole time, you know, when I'd first heard about Bitcoin, I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, what, what makes something valuable. And then, you know, it's pretty much, well, there's like discounted cash flow analysis or any sort of analysis that helps people determine what is the value of something based on the future economic benefit that it produces to you. And, um, you know, and then other than that, there's like quantity theory of money models, which are just like, you know, it's like the most theoretical thing. There's no way to actually get to any sort of um, deterministic outcome with that. So it's kind of like, okay, um, you know, maybe this thing is worth something, um, but I don't know how to value it. I don't really know what it's worth. And, uh, and that caused me to kind of write it off for a long period of time. And then, you know, it was like a, a friend of mine who was like really interested in the technology, not as much of a finance background, was always bringing up how, you know, look, man, you should really look into this thing. It's pretty crazy. And then, you know, it was once it clicked with me, I was like, oh, this is an alternative to central banking. And this is just a, this is a different monetary system that could emerge off of this thing. And we've created like a new monetary good. That's when things got really interesting for me. And that's when I was pretty hooked on it, because, you know, up until that point, I always accepted that the, you know, I, I, I knew the problem with debt. I knew the problem with fiat money, um, not as in depth as I, you know, ended up getting once I got into Bitcoin, but I generally knew that like, this is an unsustainable system of, you know, booms and busts. And we create that through central banking and, um, nobody should be in control of the system, but you know, so it goes, what else are we going to do? It's, it's already in place. There's nothing that could actually change that. Um, and then, 
yeah, once it clicked with me with Bitcoin, I was like, holy shit, like this is the, you know, this is the solution to all that. And so once I got interested in that and I jumped into the industry and I started digging deeper into it, I was kind of like, okay, well, you know, what did I wish I had heard when I, you know, the very first day, what book would I would have wanted to be given? And that, that's kind of what I tried to write. So I was like, okay, monetary history is a big piece, um, but it's, it, it's definitely just one aspect of it. Um, and to really get a firm idea of, um, what the issue is that Bitcoin's solving. You don't just need to know how money works. You need to know how the banking system works. And those things are so tied together today that it's practically the same thing under a fiat system. So I wanted to explain how that would work, you know, as simply as I could. Um, and, and what's interesting about that too, kind of like in hindsight, I, I, I wanted to blow, there are certain areas around banking where like banking can just get so complex and, um, and to be like, uh, what's the word, you know, to be, like verifiably or you know to be like very precise with how you are accounting for how the banking system works um and not be subject to like different gotchas about different things requires like way more explanation than i really thought was completely necessary and i was like okay you can kind of like you know simplify it down a bit more it may not be like technically it kind of works slightly different but like this gives people the gist of how money's created and all that. So I tried to kind of boil it down to like that point uh, and not make it as much of like an academic text. Um, and, and the, you know, that's like the first half of the book is just me defining the problem. Here's, here's how money works. Here's the theory behind it. Um, here's how the banking system works. Here's kind of the trends throughout history that we've seen and all that. And, um, and that really defines the problem pretty clearly and what's going on in society today because of that and how it's all evolved over time. And once you can do that, that's that's always the first step with understanding Bitcoin. You know, if I'm at a Christmas party and, you know, somebody asked me, you know, I get it happen a ton this year when the Bitcoin conversations come up and I don't even really end up talking much about Bitcoin to them. You know, I'll just say, well, look, like here, here's what's going on in the financial world and here's how our banking system works and here's what's happening with wealth inequality and here's what's happening to your property rights and here's what government spending is. And once you see all that picture, it's kind of like, now here's a form of money that nobody controls. And then it clicks a lot easier for people. So it's really important, I think, to like define the problem very clearly up front. And then when I got into banking, you know what I, or uh, sorry, not banking, Bitcoin, you know, what I really wanted was when I was first getting into it, I think that it was kind of, it, it's kind of hard or was at that point in time to really find like a happy medium between technical resources and, you know, kind of oversimplified analogies that people would use to explain Bitcoin. So I wanted to find something that did get technical enough so that you really knew what was going on under the hood. Um, but I didn't want to do that in everything because I thought a lot of the more technical resources, um, they were very expansive. They would kind of go like mastering Bitcoin or Jimmy Sox programming Bitcoin. They're covering like every aspect and going into the weeds around a lot of it. And I was like, okay, from, you know, for the people who are more financially minded from the investor's perspective, you don't need to necessarily know all the different type of wallets. And like, here's how a hierarchical deterministic wallet works. You know, it's fun if you're a nerd, but like not everybody wants to get into that all the time. And uh, I was like, okay, so like what, what what's the technical stuff that you need to know so that you really, it clicks in your head, like here's how the incentives of Bitcoin work and here's what makes it secure. And, um, and I kind of got into the weeds around some of that stuff in a way that I thought was easy enough to understand. And then there were just other areas. Like I remember... You know, when I was first getting into Bitcoin, I was like, how does the code change? You know, what what is governance? How does that actually work? And it's just like not a very clearly defined thing. So I wanted to lay a lot of that out and say, like, here's how it works. Um, here's the process in which, you know, Bitcoin improvement proposals go through. Here's how they're campaigned for. Here's the possibility that they can get involved. Um, you know, there's different parties that have control over different things. There's nobody who's purely in control of any of it. And um you know, and then I, you know, I wanted to briefly kind of talk about some of like the regulatory threats and, um, and then, you know, I tie a lot of it together and I'm like, okay, you know, we've talked about all these different things in Bitcoin. We've kind of defined the problem with money and banking. Um, so how does that really impact Bitcoin's value as a form of money and how does that compare to other forms of money? And then, you know, the final chapter, the, another big thing that I wanted to focus on in my book was to be a lot more measured with my assessment of Bitcoin. Um, you know, people in this industry are really passionate. And that's great. 
But I know from the investor's perspective that, you know, if I ever see more emotional arguments or impassioned arguments, that's kind of a red flag for me. So I wanted to make sure that it was something that was a bit more measured. And I say, no, like, here's both sides. Bitcoin's not perfect. It's not a certainty. Um, But, you know, I think it's the best bet that I can make in my lifetime. And it's definitely worth, you know, being a part of. And, yeah, that's kind of the general gist of the book. Yeah, I like it a lot. I read the Bitcoin Standard, and then I also read uh, the Seventh Property. And I, both are great books. Arguably, yours might be better. I think more things like clicked in my head <laughs> when I read read the Seventh Property. I mean, Safedine's book was good, but yeah, I mean, like you talked about before Safedine's book, there weren't really many good resources on right. how to learn Bitcoin or like what what even Bitcoin was. Like, you had technical resources. You could read the code. Um, you could read like the Nakamoto Institute by Pierre and, and Bitstein, yep. but like that was just like a sketchy blog. It wasn't like a, <laughs> yeah. a nice book or anything that you could look at. So yeah, I think it is a great book. Everyone should check it out. Um, yeah, it, it, um, yeah, and on that point, like the majority of the value add for the book was just like aggregating a bunch of different things I learned. Uh, well, you know, to be fair, it's like there's very pretty much no idea really is an original idea, but in terms of like back then, what I thought to be an original idea is really only, you know, a handful of concepts throughout the book. The majority of it's just like, I had to, you know, scour the internet and find all these different resources to really get my head around it and be like, okay, I think I get it now. Um, and I wanted to like aggregate a lot of that for people. Yeah. Great point. I mean, it's, it's interesting how it's like developed over time because in a way, Bitcoin is like this technology that, the core consensus rules are extremely difficult to change. And it's like, okay, if these are extremely difficult to change, no one really knows what it even is because no one's even outlined what it is. We were all kind Mm -hmm. of like discovering Bitcoin while it was growing up in a way. I don't know if that makes any sense. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's all happening on the fly. And like, you know, to people listening that if you're thinking about getting involved in the industry, uh, You'd be surprised at how much you can help out. Like, there's, uh, it's a lot bigger, but I think a lot of the media attention's kind of outpaced its development in a lot of ways. And um, there, there's plenty of room to help in a lot of ways. If there's one thing that surprised me, it's like there's, um, you know, it's it's a very open community that wants to support people, and uh, and there's a need for everything. And you know, there's a lot of ways that you can add value. Yeah, definitely. I want to dive into the paper that you published uh, later, towards the end of last year at least. It's titled Bitcoin Banking Systems, and you were talking about full reserve banking and free banking. I think you're like, your book is a good background on, okay, like what is Bitcoin? Why is it relevant in today's like economic environment? Why should you basically hold Bitcoin? And then this paper is more diving into, okay, people are going to hold Bitcoin because it's the best money or the best monetary tool how is the banking system or is there going to be a banking system? How is that going to develop on top of Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, my book is more like a review of history and saying, you know, here's what is and here's where we are now. And then a lot of my research is a lot more prospective now. And I'm like, okay, where, where is this thing going? Um, and, you know, is that good? Is that bad? What can we do to prevent it? Uh, what can't we do? What's just going to emerge? And we probably don't have much control over it. Um, and yeah, like, you know, the reason um, it, it was funny when I was first writing that banking systems paper, it was because, you know, I was planning on doing more of a deep dive into just various scaling and programmability technologies and where that's going to go. Um which number one I've, I'm still doing and probably still will be doing for a very long time, uh, but is is an incredibly complex new field, uh, and it's really cool all these different technologies being built. And um, but you know I was planning on getting more into that, and then it was funny because it was like this summer, um, you know it was uh, Nick Carter kind of released Bitcoiners hate credit, you know, and for good reason, and. You know, Nick Carter released kind of like a responsive paper towards that, and he was like, um, "You know, look, don't don't throw away all of credit. Um, credit's good, but he was very like broadly speaking about it, which is you got to be really careful when you're broadly speaking about topics in this industry because uh, number one, it's it's very nuanced. It's very hard to write. Like, I would feel if you asked me on these topics to write like a two page paper, or three page, or five page." I would feel very uncomfortable. I'm just like, I'll, I'll be forced to say things that are just like too broad to be correct. But, um, 
you know, I was getting into it. I was kind of like, okay, well, you know, Nick put this piece out and then Stefan Levera had like the Austrian response to it. Um, and you know, that's what got me thinking. Like, I think that the community kind of needs a bit of a deep dive into theory. And, you know, it was during that time when I read, um, George Selgin's book on free banking that he wrote back in the eighties. And it's actually a decently quick read. It's not incredibly long. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I think he, he was a good writer. Um, but, you know, when I, I got into that and I read a few other different resources and I was kind of like, okay, I think that we could like deep dive into the theory of a lot of this because, I, you know, also at the same time, it was um, uh, Jeff Snyder was getting a lot of traction in the community around some of his thesis um, and talking about the complexity of how banking actually works and how that works in an international level. And, um, and you know, people debate this idea a lot of that boils down to like, do we need elasticity in our money? Do we need credit to be a part of it? Can it be a fixed supply of something or do we have to have something like credit, which is a variable aspect to the supply? So if we think about if we're on a pure Bitcoin standard and we just have a fixed amount that is predictable and we know where it's going. And then if that also had, you know, some form of credit money that existed on top of it where, you know, Bitcoin's the reserve and then we expand the supply of money beyond the amount of reserves, whatever exceeds that amount of Bitcoin in reserve, that's the amount of credit that we're expanding in the, in the economy through the money supply. And that's more variable. It can fluctuate. And, you know, kind of the, the argument is that, you know, well, at least Jeff was making the point that, you know, we need to have something that's elastic. We don't want something that's like pure fiat um, that's all credit. And we also don't want something that's, you know, pure commodity or like Bitcoin is like synthetic commodity money. Um, and we want to have something that's kind of in between. And it's it's an interesting argument. Um, and it's a popular argument. I think that, you know, you find very few people in like the broader economic community who would disagree with that. Um but I wanted to get into the theory around a lot of that. And I wanted to say like, okay, you know, do we need elastic money? Um, are there alternatives that might serve a similar purpose to what people want? Um, and if so, what would that look like on a Bitcoin standard? And, you know, what I was thinking when I started writing it versus the conclusions I came to at the end were uh, it, it changed quite a bit for me, which was interesting. Um, I think going into this, I was kind of like, oh, you know, credit's always going to exist. Credit, you know, is issued through some form of like, you know, fractional banking. Um, we'll, we'll need some sort of money supply that can adjust to expansions and contractions in the economy. Ideally, you know, we want something that is, um, we want something that's stable in price as well as scarce. And like that, that's kind of what my thinking was at the beginning of it. And I think what's interesting is that because, you know, we've been in the system for so long and because a lot of people have been kind of trained to think this direction, um, you don't actually have to have credit be issued as a part of money. You know, it can be issued in a lot of different ways. And as a practical consideration and by the nature of our banking system, it's been issued through money. Um, but we could have a fixed supply of money and then the costs of having a fixed supply of money, which would mean it's, you know, somewhat less responsive to economic shocks in certain forms that can be made up for through like a full reserve type system. Um, it's uh, and, and this is kind of, you know, getting into this discussion, I think, is where people start to get a lot more confused of how that all works. So, like, here's kind of where I came out to on, like, a simple way to think about it. I think it's really good to kind of, like, when you're thinking about how this stuff works, to, like, push it into extremes. So if we push it to one extreme, let's assume we have an economy with zero credit, no credit exists. Um, and, and actually I, I think what's also helpful for this too, is when I say credit, let's just assume, uh, you know, let's include equity in that too. The only equity that exists is really like your own savings. It's the only amount that you can invest in something. So, um, if we assume an economy like that, then there would likely be if only people were able to finance entrepreneurial ventures, you want to go start a business, you could only do it if you have enough savings, then there would probably be quite a bit of projects that would be limited uh, and would never ex exist because nobody's lending or you know providing equity investment of their savings to a person who doesn't have as much savings as they do and needs it. So we need some form of capital allocation that exists and that can come through equity or it can come through credit. And, um, so that's kind of the extreme of like, there's one of the big problems is that you're limiting growth in some form by not having that level of financing. If we want to push the world forward, if we want living standards to go down, then we need to be 
allocating capital to productive economic purposes. And, you know, the next step is like, okay, well, what if we have some sort of system of allocation of capital? And then people say, okay, um, you know, I'm a doctor. I have a ton of savings. I don't know how to allocate capital. I don't know much about anything other than my profession. What am I going to do that's going to help me um, allocate it to other people so I could actually earn a rate of return on my savings? And then you can go, they would talk to somebody who specializes in doing that, some type of investor. And that could be a credit intermediary. It could be an equity investor. But you give your money to them, they go out, do due diligence on various projects, make bets on certain things. If they're good, then they're in a rate of return, and then they give you a portion of it, and they take what they take. So that can exist, and that's like you know, a full reserve system where all they're doing is they're taking savings from certain people, and they're reallocating it to areas um, where it can be used more productively. And um, you know, that type of a system expands it a bit more. Now we have more enterprises that are being built and we have an economy that's going to be growing from that. And, you know, the next step is, okay, well, what if we are putting it into something kind of like our banking system today and we give it to that intermediary, but that intermediary is issuing their own form of money on top of it. So we give them our Bitcoin, they're issuing some sort of receipt to Bitcoin and then they ultimately issue more receipts. So when they go give a loan, they don't send Bitcoin directly to that person. They send them a receipt that entitles them to Bitcoin. Well, what happens is, and what we've seen throughout history, is that people trust these receipts. And then they start using the receipts as money. That's how paper money emerged on a gold standard. And people start trading those around the world. And then once people have a ton of trust in that receipt, it's easy for the banks to just issue more receipts without having any gold and deposits backing it. And then that's how the money supply expands. They're issuing credit to people through these receipts, and there's no actual you know, gold or Bitcoin that's going into it. So that's another way of issuing credit is directly by issuing these receipts. So that expands a bit more. There's now more things that can be financed that otherwise wouldn't because in a full reserve system, you're limited. You can only issue how much money supply is available. Um, whereas, and to, to an extent, there's exceptions, but generally speaking. Um, but to, uh, to have a fractional reserve system, that creates a new mechanism by which we can expand actual money itself and we can push a lot more supply in, and we do that by issuing credit. So it makes credit become a part of money when we have that type of a system. Um, so these three systems I've just described, you know, we have in the peer-to-peer -peer type system, we have, you know, credit is limited completely. There is no credit. And, you know, you, you're going to have no risk of anybody ever going bankrupt because people can only use their savings. So it's a good thing. No risk of bankruptcy, but we're sacrificing growth in our economy in a lot of different ways. Uh, and then the next step is, okay, well, if we have some sort of, you know, full reserve system of just credit intermediaries, they're not issuing a receipt. They're just, um, they're just allocating capital from one person's savings to another. Um, that's limited by um, the amount of reserves that exist in the system. So that's one of the key things. We want to have credit, but maybe we would just want to limit it to a certain point. Um, and then if we move to the third system where we actually have some sort of like fractional reserve on receipts, that system is limited by the degree of solvency of the system. So like that's when we start to have a lot more boom and bust. It doesn't mean a full reserve system can't have bankruptcy. It can the only thing that's possible is if we eliminate it altogether um, to remove that risk. But this expands it to a much greater degree where the solvency of the institution is now in question um, but to a much greater degree. And then the last bucket, we'll call it, you know, the fourth bucket is fiat central banking. And that's, you know, there are no reserves. The money is all credit. Um, and the cost of all that is going to be long-term inflation. And that system isn't limited by anything. So it's, well, it's technically it's limited by political regime change. And like you see that in fiat systems that you get hyperinflation and the whole thing blows up. So that's the least limited and that has the worst consequences. So it's like somewhere along kind of this spectrum of scenarios, we're going to, we're going to see something happen. Um, and, and the question kind of becomes, okay, so, if we had like a full reserve system, then going, this goes back to my point around, do we need fractional reserve to issue credit? And it's like, well, if we have a full reserve system, we're still issuing credit. It's just limited in more forms. So like this whole idea of like elastic money and it being more responsive, that's once you get into like fractional reserve and you're issuing it as a part of money. 
credit is still credit. Capital allocation is still allocation. It's just a question of how far can we expand it before um, you know we're limited. And w when that's the case, it's like, okay, then maybe it's enough for us to just have a full reserve system. And, you know, it's, it's a very subjective question, right? It's something that we can't really like, you know, really define for ourselves what that's going to be. Um, and it's something that would probably be different for a lot of other people. Some people might say, okay, well, full reserve system has the right amount of malinvestment that occurs, whereas a fractional reserve system has too much. And other people might say the opposite. Um, and so it's, you know, there's all these different views of what it's going to be. And the, what I was first, when I was getting into a lot of this research, I was like, okay, well, you know, we could still have credit in a full reserve system, but it's more limited. That's good. It's a bit safer. I think personally, that's probably going to be enough for capital allocation. Um, and we don't really need to have some sort of fractional reserve system where we're trading receipts. Um, but then I was like, the problem is, is, you know, that's what I want, but what is, what's going to come. And, uh, and that's where it gets a lot trickier because, you know, I was just on George Gaiman's podcast talking about this. Um, you know, people have, you know, th this was the first point that he made to me. He was just like, we've never seen a fractional reserve system in, or uh, sorry, a full reserve system that's emerged in like a market environment throughout history, which is completely true. And that's definitely um, where I started in this research is with kind of with the idea in mind that we've never seen in history, you know, there's no way that if private markets are left up to their own accord that we'll ever see like a naturally emerging full reserve system. There's always going to be fractional reserve. Um, I was thinking in that direction when I was starting to get into a lot of this research. And I think that it's, while it's kind of a harder argument to make just because it is a strong exception to history, um, I think that what is kind of unique to Bitcoin is that there's a lot of exceptions uh, or uh, not exceptions, but there's there's a lot of differences between Bitcoin and what we've seen throughout history. If we if you go and you read th free banking theory and you look at what it's based off of, you know, there's around 60 observations that have kind of been studied of different free banking type systems that were, you know, existed for a material amount of time, there's really only a handful of those that are considered by definition of the theory, like true free banking systems. The problem is, is that like, like the US is a great example, that system was heavily regulated. So it created a lot of perverse incentives. Like the free banking system in the US was largely a shit show in most districts. And um, it was only kind of up in like the New England uh, East Coast area where it was, it was working decently enough. But um, you know, for the most part, it didn't go very well. And it's because, like, there were all these laws that the state politicians were incorporating. They're like, okay, if you want to run a free bank, then you have to use our bonds as collateral. And they're, like, forcing them to do things that the market wouldn't choose. And it screwed up the market environment. So, like, by the theory, it's kind of like it was, you know, it needs to be something that has um, severely limited regulation, um, a high degree of competition and a high degree of information transparency. And if it has those qualities and it's, you know, a bit subjective, but when you get in and read history, you kind of know it when you see it. Um, we had relatively uh, successful free banking systems that existed for periods of time, like Canada and Scotland are kind of the two that were considered to be, um, you know, the, the ideal of what we could go for. They weren't without problems. Um, you know, famously, like Austrians have criticized the Scottish free banking system um, because it had a um, – it uh, paused withdrawals for about a 20-year period. Um, and that's a huge deal, right? That's, that's, that's exactly what you don't want in a free banking system. Um, and it's a legitimate criticism. I think the problem is is that you have to, to, to fully flesh that out. It's like, was it the fault of a free banking system or was it the fault that we had a Scottish system that was closely tied to England and there were wars going on and a bunch of economies were hopping off a gold standard and now you have to keep, compete against all this other fiat money in the system. I mean, there's, there's so much complexity around what impacted this system that were all these exogenous things that occurred outside of the actual free banking system. So... You can criticize it, but there's plenty of arguments against too. And it's really hard to say whether or not you know that was the reason. Uh, it's free banking's bad, and that's why that happened. Um, but nonetheless, it was a reality. And I think that when you think about like these historical examples, 
there's there's few observations of it, but nonetheless, you, we you can conclusively say that for you know decades over time, these systems did function. And then that's what's interesting about Selgin's book is he goes into like you know here's how it works, here's kind of the idea. And, and, you know, going into like how that exists, a lot of people will look at a free banking system and it's like, okay, well, what is it? It's a fractional reserve system, but it's free. It's defined by market participants. So that means while we are messing with the money supply and we're issuing credit through the money supply, it's the banks aren't being bailed out. There is no central bank. There is no bailout mechanism. So what does that mean? It means if you go bankrupt, you go bankrupt. And, you know, so the first person or the first argument against that is, okay, well, that's bad. Why would we want banks going bankrupt with deposits? And it's like, well, if you have any sort of banking system um, other than people just holding on to money themselves, it's a business. Businesses have risk. It's just it's a reality that you deal with. Um, But nonetheless, like if you look at the Scottish free banking system over the entire century, greater than a century that it existed, only about 32,000 pounds were lost in customer deposits. And why is that? It's because we had, it was a business, right? There were some banks that made poor decisions and would extend too much credit and then have too many redemptions and then go into a bankruptcy. What happens? Do all the depositors lose their money? Well, no, you typically, if the rest of the system is very healthy, which you know isn't the case of crypto, and that's why everything went bankrupt. But if the rest of the system is relatively healthy, then, you know, there's a competitor that says, oh, great, now we get your customer base, we'll buy you out. Uh, maybe the equity holders lose out. Uh, maybe sometimes they don't. And um, that is something that protects the depositors from you know them losing their money. So it's like you know people take on a risk with a lot of different things. There's no perfect way of going against it. Private insurance programs are kind of like the ideal. Um, we have public insurance programs for our banking system, which cause way more problems than they actually solve. Um, but nonetheless, it's something that um, the customers, you, you could look at a system that existed over a century like that, and it could have you know the problems that it had and say, like, okay, you know, by my standards at least, I think that this was pretty good. And um, there, there, there was a lot of benefit that came from it. And then there's arguments to be made, um, and Adam Smith was a proponent of some of these, that that actually spurred quite a bit of growth within those economies during that time as well. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like the general history of it. And then getting into the question, I think, around, you know, how, do, how does it actually work and what, what misconceptions are there? Um, well... I talked about the problem with like fiat central banking and how there is a bailout system and that bailout isn't actually a bailout. It just means your money supply gets more inflated. The cost falls on somebody and that's the entire population through inflation. Um, That's what we don't want. We want a bank when it fails, the people involved in that bank to fail, except for the customers who are trusting the bank. We want the investors of the bank and the owners of the bank to be the ones who have to pay for that consequence. So a free banking system is very much tied to that notion. And, uh, when you think about how it works, it's like when you have a fractional reserve system, let's assume you know we're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about the future on Bitcoin. Um, if you have a bank with 100 Bitcoin in it and then they have in that Bitcoin is say a 20% reserve, then we've got um, you know another 400 of fiduciary media is the term, any amount of money that's expanded beyond the amount of reserves that it has. We have 400 in that credit money that's issued. And... Um, so that amount is something that doesn't just keep going. So like a lot of people think that if we have fractional reserve, that means we're just perpetually going to be drowning in inflation. And like that's not the case. At the beginning of a system, you will have credit expansion. You will have inflation that emerges from it because that money supply has to eventually reach an equilibrium point where they're going to say, okay, here's the right amount of reserves that we need to keep within our bank to remain solvent based on historically what we've seen for the amount of redemptions people have at some point in time. So they'll look at those numbers and they'll say 20% was the right number. In the Scottish system, 10 to 20% was the majority of it for the first half. Um, after it got a lot more like clamped down on, that dropped all the way down to like 3%, but that was kind of screwing with the incentives of the system. Um, but, you know, call it 20%. When you're sitting at that amount and um, 
eventually they reach a point where they're saying, okay, we can't expand too much more. Otherwise, we're going to go bankrupt. Our creditors are going to, or our competitors are going to buy us out. And, you know, I'm going to be out of a job and, you know, my wife's going to divorce me. So, like, there's legitimate constraints on that system um, through rational decision making of market participants. So, like, once you, and the term for that is the principle of adverse clearings. That's what's ultimately like limiting and creating that equilibrium point at which credit expands within that a free banking system. So, that's kind of the first key piece is that. It's not a persistent expansion of credit. It's just kind of like moving the money supply up for a while, and then one portion of the money supply is fixed. The other portion of the money supply is a lot more variable. It can contract if there's some sort of economic need. It can also expand a bit more, but it fluctuates around an equilibrium point. It's a bit more elastic. Um, so that's the, you know that's kind of like that's the general overview I think of thinking about you know free banking, and then you know. Uh, I, I, I could pause there. I can start going into like, you know, how it applies to Bitcoin. Before we get into the podcast, here's a quick message from our sponsor. Being involved in Bitcoin means you value freedom, financial freedom, freedom to save and freedom to spend. Privacy, digital security and no Internet tracking logs are critical in the information age today. NordVPN is my favorite VPN service. It's fast, secure, and offers 5,500 secure servers in 59 countries. You can connect to any one of them and enjoy your favorite content no matter where you are. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. The best part about this sponsorship, there's literally no risk with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Check out our link, nordvpn.com slash blockware, to get your subscription started today. Yeah, I think I'd be good uh, to go into how, how it applies to Bitcoin. I mean, it's okay. just like, I guess I can make a side note. I feel like this is such an interesting topic that not enough people have been like, thinking about like i wish more academics would realize that like hey bitcoin is this new unique monetary tool it may be very special how is an economic system going to develop around it and so i think that like people like you thinking about this and talking about it publicly is great to to experiment the ideas but yeah i definitely want to know how that applies to bitcoin specifically yeah yeah and i, I completely agree man i think it's uh I think that these are probably going to be in the coming years. Like these, are, that's why I'm focused on. I think it's going to be like the most important question uh, once we really start to see how the system builds out in layers. Um, you know, what are those going to look like? How is that going to impact uh, capital allocation and credit? Um, and yeah, I think that in, in all, before I like get into it, it's like all, all, a lot of what I'm describing here. This is all post hyper Bitcoinization. This is a very long term you know, prospective thing. Don't think about what I'm saying in terms of, you know, what's happened over the past year. But, um, you know, once Bitcoin kind of reaches that level post hyper Bitcoinization, then it, it will have found kind of like it's, it's, um, equilibrium value. It'll be, you know, gradually very, very, very slightly increasing in supply and, um, it will have consumed the market for money in some form. And, you know, like you had a tweet the other day that was like the perfect way of breaking this down. I, I one that was kind of similar. It was like, um, you know, if uh, uh, if everything's in custody, then we just have gold 2.0. And then, you know, you made the point. And then if it's a reserve asset, then it would be, you know, that's kind of in the middle. It'll be a little bit more. And then if it actually becomes the entire money supply, then it's going to be worth some massive amount, um, which, you know, is even kind of challenging to quantify. But it's uh, so that's kind of the key question around a lot of this theory. And that's what makes it really important, you know, to, to people out there who are getting a bit bored around the history. Like how much Bitcoin's worth is going to be largely determined by what proportion of credit exists within the economy. And um and so, like, that that's the really important idea behind it. But, like, I think when I got into a lot of this, to my earlier point, I was thinking, like, you know, we're probably going to have some sort of fractional system and Bitcoin's going to be a reserve asset. And that'll be that'll be obviously massive for Bitcoin. Um, but we'll want to have some sort of elasticity in money. And I think where I kind of ended up is that, like, Bitcoin has very unique properties 
And what we can do in this digitally native type system is uh, there's a lot of new innovations that have emerged on top of it beyond just Bitcoin. The, the implications of what Bitcoin creates in terms of new technologies that are you know integrated with it in some form. Um, it could potentially make the system so efficient that it's like basically impossible to run a fractional reserve. Um, and and that, that was one of the key things that I started getting into. And Farrington and I were talking a while about that. And he brought up a lot of great points that like made me start thinking that direction. Um, but it's, you know, if we had some sort of system where, you know, Bitcoin, we've decentralized the monetary base. So like that's the biggest thing. As long as we're using Bitcoin as a reserve asset, there's no way to run a central bank. So like, we solved the central bank problem. Now the next question is, what about the fractional reserve problem? Um, if we create a system that's so efficient, then, um, you know, I guess I'll take a step back. What is it that creates the fractional reserve system? It's trusting in a receipt on the reserve. If we never get to a point where, you know, broader markets trust a receipt, everybody's like, I just want to receive Bitcoin. I don't want your receipt for Bitcoin. Um, and when we have something like the Lightning Network that enables global scale payments that efficiently, Lightning Network's not perfect. It has like certain like you know bottlenecking issues with onboarding, but there's different ways to go about trying to solve that. Um, but I think that you know if Lightning is at a global scale, we've made payments so efficient it's like there is no need for a receipt anymore and then it's like okay well how do you get a fractional reserve system if you can't issue receipts and it's like you can't everybody's just gonna they're gonna take a borrow and they're gonna say i, I want to borrow from you and you say cool i'll pay you in lightning it's that easy and they're like okay and then the bank's like shit you know we can't issue fractional reserve anymore because everybody just wants bitcoin physically delivered um so like that's kind of like the first question is like will we see some sort of receipt get issued, and and there's other systems and ways this could build out that I think are also valuable, um, other than Lightning, such as technologies like eCash with like Fediman or Cashew, and you know those things are um, those are a receipt and that creates some sort of mechanism by which a fractional system can emerge because once people start to trust that receipt rather than the underlying asset that it's reserved in that's when the bank can start expanding it beyond the amount of reserves. So like we also have systems like that emerging and that could be one way that it does start to initially emerge. And I think that, you know, what's important about um, considering those types of systems is that it, it, you know, it comes down to just the degree of information transparency and like how free the actual system is. And um, I think that, if we have something like an e-cash system and, you know, people don't totally know what the supply is of a lot of this stuff, then it creates an even more fertile environment for something like fractional reserve to emerge. The question then becomes like, okay, well, what would prevent it? So now we know a way in which it could emerge. Um, lightning solves a lot of problems. Maybe Lightning is used so widely that it never really does. Maybe eCash takes off and that creates a very fertile environment for it. Um, but even if it does start to emerge, what could prevent it? And this kind of goes back to an explanation around what happened in free banking history. And I think we'll see something very comparable, but probably much more lethal, is that a lot of what kept the system in check was there was like a class of people who were like solvency speculators. And they were kind of like, um, they were like these brokers and they'd say, okay, you know, we're over in... Um, you know, one town and there's the bank of this town, they issue certain notes and then a town that's two hours the other way, they also have their bank and that bank's issuing its own notes. I'm at my town, I got a bunch of notes from there, me and the family take a trip to the other town. I wanna go, um, you know, spend my notes in that town or swap them at the bank in that town for that bank's notes. So when you have different notes, they're not completely fungible. There's different credit that's assigned to each bank. If somebody starts to get really worried about one of the banks going insolvent, then that bank's going to be a lot uh, worth a lot less than the other town's bank. And because of that, there was like a broker class that emerged in free banking system. And their full-time job was basically like to speculate on that and say like, okay, we have a lot more, we know a lot more about how the banking system works and what the different banks are doing. And what's our full-time job as opposed to the everyday guy who just doesn't really give a shit and wants to use money. So, 
because we know this, we can take advantage of our knowledge and we can go and either um, start selling notes where we think they're overvalued in one market and start buying notes that we think are undervalued. People are kind of underappreciating that, oh, people are worried about this bank. It's actually fine. We're just going to go buy them up at a discount and go redeem them at the bank and get gold. You know, It's an arbitrage trade that they're doing. And um, so it's kind of like this redemption arbitrage mechanism where people are doing that between the different notes when they fluctuate in price. So number one, you know, that created like a lot of efficiency uh, within the system. And number two, it kept the system a lot more honest. So if you had people that wanted to speculate in, the, in, in these systems, it was primarily competitors that would do this. Um, so you had it was like the term for it was note dueling, and basically some competitors would say like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna act extra like careful over the next few months, and we're gonna start buying up a bunch of notes from our competing bank, and then we're gonna go redeem them all at once one day and see if they have the reserves in there. So they would create these. There was a lot of competition, and a lot of the bankruptcy that emerged in the system was when that was first occurring. And a lot of that occurred kind of at the emergence of the system when it was a lot more, you know, it was much younger. Once it reaches maturity, a lot of that goes away. Um, so that note dueling function, I think, is one thing that we'll see. Um, if we did have like an e-cash system, it would be way easier for people to ultimately speculate on the solvency of different like e-cash banks. Um, it would be a lot cheaper with Lightning uh, to send these types of trades, with make, which makes arbitrage much more efficient. And when you think about certain innovations like flash loans, like in the DeFi ecosystem, when we had the Aave protocol implemented flash loans, and it's like, look, there's this like public pool of liquidity that anybody can borrow. If there is an on-chain verifiable arbitrage trade that you could execute, then we'll let you use all the liquidity in the pool for like an instantaneous transaction as your form of leverage. So that was kind of like a new innovation. It's like, we get, we provably have this amount of liquidity that we can lend to you. If you can provably show us an arbitrage trade, we'll finance that for an instantaneous transaction. So that made arbitrage like a lot more efficient. I think that's a really interesting innovation. And I think that like that kind of an innovation paired with like lightning network, um, It'll be like really hard to run a fractional reserve bank if people could very you know scale that amount of liquidity and put you out of business. So I think that could be one interesting thing. Um, and the devil's in the details around that too. There could be ways in which that could be prevented. But um, you know, nonetheless, I think that 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 was one of the key aspects. Another going back to that point around the note dueling um, when that system when there was a lot more note dueling, it was because there wasn't as much um, kind of agreement among the banks. There wasn't anybody who was kind of integrating them. And what emerged that made the banking system settle down a lot more were these forms of private clearing houses. And they originally emerged because there was a need of netting of payments to make it a lot more efficient. It's I'm bank A and you're bank B. Um, I owe you $100, you owe me $50. Rather than me give you 100 and you give me 50 um, you know, I'll just give you 50. So you would net the payments to different people and they needed a centralized clearing houses so that all the banks could just net their payments in one spot. And what ultimately ended up happening is like, you know, that clearing house served more functions beyond that. It kind of became like this general commons for the system where people would, um, <clears throat> where people would go, all the different banks would participate and would say like, okay, well, you know, it reduced a lot of the, uh, it created a bit more cohesion. So it reduced a lot of that like nasty competition that was going on. And, you know, only certain banks could become a member of it. So if you wanted to be a part of the clearinghouse, then you need to be a legitimate guy who's not running some sketchy bank that's obviously running like a 99% fractional reserve. So only it created a lot more legitimacy because if you wanted to be a part of this, then you had to be, you know, operating on certain practices. It helped them set their reserve ratios and commonality. Um, if one bank was about to go bankrupt, it created an easier way for them to find a buyer or somebody to support and they could, you know, manage liquidity to help different banks out. So like that kind of like centralized cog in the banking system of clearinghouse functionality, that was another big thing that like, you know, prevented the system from getting too out of control. And I could see something like that, um, and depending on how it looks, I could see potentially like if we have a fractional reserve system, like, um, you know, lightning service providers might end up actually filling that role. Proof of reserve type companies, um, they're kind of playing in that field as well. 
I could, I, it's probably going to be some sort of combination of those functions gets combined into like that type of a role that if we do see this like a fractional system emerge, we'll have this centralized party where effectively like they're, they they provide a stamp of approval. So if you're going to use a certain uh, Bitcoin bank that's issuing some form of e-cash, for example, um, you only want to go to the ones that have the stamp of approval of that centralized clearinghouse or whatever you want to call it. Um, and they, uh, if they have that, then you can know that you know there's, there's a lot more legitis- legitimacy. Maybe they're practicing proof of reserves. Maybe there's certain audit requirements that exist. Um, you know, there's uh, maybe there's certain checks and balances that are being put in place, uh, certain levels of transparency that are provided. There's a, there's a lot of different things that could happen. Um, insurance requirements could be another thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I could see the potential for the system building out. And if it did build out, it'd probably be a lot more efficient. But um, I also think that there's a lot of ways in which this system could really be relegated to a full reserve because it's going to be really hard to actually run it like that. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, that, that that's generally like the high-level thoughts. There's, I, there, there's a million other things I can go into around some of the implications of like what this could look like. Um, but I think it's uh, – yeah, I, I think it's really important because ultimately, like, I'm talking about all these arguments for and against, and, you know, that, that'll impact the price and the value of Bitcoin and the trust that exists in the system uh, probably more than anything else. Yeah, no, I think that was well covered. I think that was great. I'm curious to know your thoughts on this from, like, a very big picture. When Bitcoin reaches, like, this equilibrium point and, like, the the price of Bitcoin relative to, you know, goods and services or whatever is probably like slowly going up over time as like technology gets better, population gets bigger, whatever. In my mind, Bitcoin is like this productivity index fund without like any sort of counterparty risk and no fees. And in my mind also like markets are fairly efficient. So it's very difficult to outperform this elite perfect productivity index fund unless you have like real alpha and so like if that's the case wouldn't a large large majority of individuals and people just hold bitcoin not even invest in credit per se or or equity at all like most people would probably just hold bitcoin because that's the best risk adjusted return would you agree with that or what are your thoughts on that idea yeah, certainly. Um, I and, and that's something I kind of skipped over when I was like laying the land out post hyper Bitcoinization. But yeah, to be clear, there's a question of just you know, regardless of whether or not fractional reserve exists, if we're talking you know a century from now or you know 50 years from now, whatever it is, um, yeah, there's there's a very strong argument to be made that technological progression in a deflationary money is just going to make credit you know the the size of the credit market will shrink. That's that's certain. The question is. You know, will it be material? Will the will there be a large enough credit market? And uh, you know, where I come out, it's like, it, it you know, it, it's hard to say. It's like, <laughs> I think that um, you know, if you like read Jeff Booth's book um, and a lot of these futuristic ideals around like AI that are, it's kind of crazy. AI is starting to get really real this year, and um, and I think that, like, yeah, if you get into this argument, it's like, yeah, sure. If we hit a technological singularity, then, yeah, it's probably, like, money itself is probably going to lose a lot of its function because we're going to have so much of what we need on demand. Like, the need for trade is going to really decrease at that point and, you know, that, that future. You know, I don't, I, I don't really know when it comes, but, it's you know, we're going to have a progression toward it. But I think what's interesting is, like, that's a, um, you know, it's an exponential curve, right? So, like... If we are close to that, then like this conversation is probably pretty moot in general. Um, we're we're gonna we're gonna out evolve ourselves, and AI is gonna be smarter and kill us off, or we don't deserve to live because it's gonna be way better than us. But whatever it is, um, I, I I do agree that going back to the point though, like <clears throat> you're going to be accumulating value from saving because it's deflationary. Um, and and that's going to be something that's going to reduce the amount of capital allocation uh, significantly within the economy. And then um, the question kind of becomes like, well, will everybody be an entrepreneur? What's going to be needed in the world? If only some people are entrepreneurs, then who's going to give them their money so that they can build things people want? And then, you know, if they are giving them their money, how are they going to give it to them? Are they going to agree to just own their business? Or are they going to agree to own some of the value of their business for a period of time? And, like, that's kind of the difference between equity and credit. <clears throat> and it's like, from the entrepreneur's perspective, um, 
you know, they obviously don't want to give up ownership in their business if they don't have to. And um, so they ideally want to structure some terms of credit. So I think about it from the perspective of it's a question more of like how much savings exist. And like, even though people are earning a rate of return, that that also comes through at the back end where it's like, okay, well, if everybody stopped lending tomorrow, if everybody stopped investing tomorrow, then we would have such a backlog on the amount of things that need to get built that like the rate of return would be massive. You know, prices would go up, people would be starving. They'll pay anything to get you to make this for them. So like, it also happens with interest rates would go up as well. And it's it, that, that's why these questions are hard because you can't really think about it in a static environment. Um, but like, I think that, you know, we'll see uh, if there's something that people want, there's going to be some sort of rate of return that will be reasonable for it. And if that rate of return is not being met, then the market responds by not allocating capital to it. Um, and eventually, if there's enough of a supply shortage, that rate of return for that area of capital allocation will go up. Um, so, like, that's kind of how I think about it. And I think when I when I think about the question of, like, will capital allocation exist? And just like, yeah, I, I think it definitely will. I just think, you know, it'll, it'll change. I think it'll be material. And then I think the question kind of becomes, well, will it be credit or will it be equity? Um, I think there'll definitely be a shift into equity because with the deflationary money, um, <clears throat> you know, lenders are going to want to lend less. They would prefer equity in that environment. So there's definitely going to be a shift. I, I struggle to determine, you know, what that would actually be. Um, but I think that nonetheless, you know, um, the size, the size of the market is going to shrink very significantly. Um, and you know, we'll have some sort of shift that goes into equity, but at the, at, on the other hand, it's not, there's going to be a much stronger demand to have credit too. It's just like, yeah, please give me credit in this deflationary money. Like that would be awesome for me. So like, um, I think that when you get into like, you know, cause like the, the argument against a lot of this is like, uh, it's in a, so like, you know, when I was like in this, taking the CFA, it was like the Mo Digliani Miller theory where like they kind of break down capital structure theory and they're like, so why do you want to finance have a fixed form of financing um, versus a form of equity financing. And like when you break it down theoretically, if you adjust for like, you know, the risk of bankruptcy and taxes, um, then equity and uh, credit financing should be like an equivalent cost. And like the entrepreneur should be indifferent, um, which is like kind of, you know, obviously massive assumptions. But um, I think that that's kind of an interesting point. I think that there's things that are, um, I think what I kind of draw from that type of thinking is like bankruptcy and taxes. Like there's a lot that those are going that changing fundamentally because we're in a much, we're in an economic environment with a lot less malinvestment. Um, and we are in one that is probably reduced the taxation power of governments pretty significantly. So like those two things, those are kind of a separate question from technological and um, technological innovation and a, this uh, deflationary money, um, but there is an indirect impact on those two variables of bankruptcy and taxes. And I think like if taxes are a lot less, then you know that actually reduces the appeal of credit pretty significantly. Being able to um, you know pull your interest expense out of um, your taxable income as a business is a really big deal. And why you know there's all these incentives that we've created politically that incentivize the adoption of credit. We subsidize it. We create beneficial tax treatment, all these things. So like if we're shrinking the power of governments too, um, that'll be another really big thing that'll probably reduce credit. And because uh, those subsidies go away and that incentive to take on a loan goes away. And um, so, you know, to like, and, you know, like we, I, we've had this conversation one time, I remember around like the duration of credit will probably change. It's like, you know, if Fannie and Freddie didn't exist, then, you know, how long would mortgage rates actually be? You know, what is the mortgage rate that a private market issuer with no government, you know, um, you know, insurance or subsidy is actually going to be giving people for a collateralized mortgage? And like, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I think that'll be significant. On the other angle, though, if the risk of bankruptcy has been reduced, um, 
you know, that that will probably make lending a bit uh, that will, you know, I guess technically um, relative to equity, that would make uh, equity actually a lot more attractive. So that would probably also reduce credit. So I guess, you know, I've kind of just talked myself into that. Yeah, credit, credit, credit's going to go down quite a bit. I'm not sure how material it's going to be, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's super fascinating to think about. I definitely agree, like, the amount of credit in the system relative to the amount of equity in the system will decrease. The amount of equity could go up relative to the credit. But it's super interesting to think about, like, how it's going to change uh, in the future. And it's, like, hard It's hard to know. Like, you can try to estimate, like, what's going to happen. But in reality, it's, like, who really knows what's going to happen. One idea that I've been thinking about somewhat recently is, like, the idea maybe it's not necessarily that, like, the amount of credit or just investing broadly in the system is going to decrease. Maybe it's more of the idea that like the amount of savings or the real amount of savings, is just going to massively increase. And then maybe those mm-hmm. people are just going to invest for fun because they have so much Bitcoin, this immutable, scarce technology. They just have so much Bitcoin. They're like, hey, like, let's go to the moon. Like, why not? Like, just because they want to. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. Right, right. Which is, you know, it's. A, I guess that's another fair argument. I feel like that's kind of a. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's kind of another way of just saying that um, if people are wealthier, then you know, if you think about like who is an investor, investors are typically people that are wealthy enough to get into the game of being like a pure capitalist. And um, so, like, yeah, if people become more wealthy, then we're probably going to have a lot more people that decide to specialize in capital allocation, in which case it's like there's going to be a lot more, you know, family offices that emerge. And therefore, you know, specialization and having like credit intermediaries like investment funds will be a more competitive environment that people are more familiar with on a day to day basis, Um, which, yeah, that could be kind of an interesting argument that people are just going to be using their own savings and have their own form of uh, investment. Yeah. And I mean, I don't we don't who knows what's going to happen, but in a way it's kind of like they may, may not necessarily be investing to get a Bitcoin denominated return. Like if they just have a lot of Bitcoin and they're like, hey, I want to do space exploration or I want to automate farming to solve world world hunger or some far out there like thing. They could just be doing that and hoping to break even or, or whatever. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. And, or maybe I'm wrong. And like this is like. Uh, a fixed money supply needs really really needs credit otherwise like the the whole system like collapses like i guess a lot of economists might say like hey like if you have a deflationary monetary supply or something that can't grow the economy is not going to grow at all and like we're all going to like die and starve like that's the other that's the opposite uh idea of, of what i'm saying basically but i don't know how it's going to play out what do you what do you have any sympathy towards that like economists that say like hey you, you need perpetually increasing monetary supply, perpetually increasing credit for like markets to function properly. Do you buy into that at all or not really? C- certainly not perpetually increasing, no. I think that perpetually, I guess I would say perpetually increasing credit in proportion to the economy. Um, like, you know, if our economy is half the size it is today and then it grew to this size, you know, the absolute value of the credit would grow, but like in proportion, like, no, it should stay within some sort of relative bound at a minimum. Um, but <clears throat> I, I, I think that like, I think the question is more like capital allocation. I think that where a lot of the waters get muddied too on this conversation, which I'm guilty of, cause I, you know, I guess number one, I would use terms people are familiar with, but honestly, I think a way better way of thinking about this question is less about credit. Um, and more about just capital allocation um, in general, credit or equity. Um, but the idea is basically like the ease at which we can allocate capital enables us to respond to economic shocks. So like, um, and, and the primary argument is basically that information isn't perfect until information Uh, transparency is perfect, entrepreneurs are going to anticipate things incorrectly. When you have a certain crisis, some sort of shock, you know, say like a hurricane, like wipes out your entire operation or something. It's like, um, okay, well, we have all this infrastructure set up for this company that's about to go bankrupt. Um, The ease at which that we can extend some form of credit um, to that person to enable them to recover and make their business a going concern in that you know economic shock, 
is beneficial. That allows them rather than having to like close up shop or, you know, liquidate their assets or something. There's some sort of labor that they accumulated over time and goodwill that goes to waste. You know, there's some sort of amount of waste that'll occur if we don't allocate to that enterprise. And I think that, and that could come through credit or equity, but like, I think like that's kind of the value. The question is like, so when I say ease at which you can extend that, that's what's pretty important. So like, you know, that's kind of another problem that Bitcoin will probably solve in a lot of ways is like the system digitally will be a lot more efficient. So it's actually going to increase the ease at which you can do it. Um, but I think that like if, um, you know, if the, the, the primary value add that most like Keynesians are arguing for is that, well, it needs to be more, you know, we need more, we need more credit because then that created a lot more growth and look at these correlations and, this is why that's good. Um, so I, I think that, I don't know. I think it's subjective. I think that there's a million different ways that you could look at that question and say like, here is the right amount of growth into the right amount of risk that was taken on within an economy. Therefore, this amount of credit is the amount that should be extended at some point in time. It's like, nobody knows. What's important is that the market determines it. And that's what I think is most important is like, you know, I, where Austrians and, you know, people, I think in some people in the Bitcoin community go wrong is that they're way too adamant about, you know, this idea of a full reserve. And it's just like, yeah, look, I'd love a full reserve. You want to make me your dictator? Like I'll probably make it a full reserve, but nobody wants that. You know, people, I, I, me personally, I want what the market is going to determine. And maybe what, what I think is the coolest thing about this question is that if we do have the system emerge on a Bitcoin standard, uh, we're probably going to reduce the power of governments enough to where we can actually watch some of these economic theories play out. And we're going to have answers in like 60 years to a lot of this and say like, yeah, that was, <laughs> we were way off there. Like that was a really dumb thing to say. But um, yeah, I think it'll be, we're, we're going to, we're going to get answers to a lot of this. I think it's going to enable free markets. And if we do have some sort of fractional system that emerges from that, like, so be it. If it emerges, it's probably because the growth is right and we're building valuable enterprise from it. Um, and maybe people want it to emerge in a fractional way as opposed to, you know, external the system. And that's one more piece I'll actually add. Credit doesn't have to exist in a system. It can exist without even money. Um, you know, credit can exist through you telling your neighbor that, you know, you're going to mow his lawn tomorrow if he does it for you later. Like there's all these things that we can do just to help, you know, people just helping each other out and having a promise that that'll be returned in kind in some form, you know, just delivering assets in advance of when you deserve them. So it's, uh, there's a lot of other ways the system can respond outside of just money in the banking system too with credit. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, the the general idea is that fractional reserve systems are respond best to economic shocks, as opposed to having to draft up like a loan agreement um, for something outside of the system. You can just very quickly issue money and like get that credit out there. It's kind of similar to like not directly analogous, but it's similar to like um, an IPO versus a secondary market sale. It's like. If you want to go raise equity through an IPO, you got to, you know, register at the SEC, go through the due diligence, hire your investment bank, hire your lawyers, get through that whole process. It'll take you like nine months um, at best. And that's that's very burdensome. It makes it very hard for you to raise capital. But once you've done that, you can go through secondary sales very quickly. So like that, that's kind of a way of thinking about one of the, the ease at which credit can be extended in a fractional system is somewhat beneficial in that form. Uh, but I think, I don't think that the, benefit really outweighs the risk from that perspective. The only way I think you can really justify it is that credit is less limited in a fractional system. That extra amount of credit that you can expand creates a lot more growth that is beneficial to the economy as opposed to a full reserve system. Um, and yeah. Yeah, no, I think this is a great conversation. I feel like this has endless like rabbit holes that you could dive down you could talk forever, but We'll yeah. go ahead and wrap it up, and I'm sure we'll we'll put this uh, paper in the show notes so people can click on it and, and dive deeper into a lot of the ideas that you talked about. Um, where else do you want to send the audience after this? Uh, yeah, just check me out on Twitter, and uh, that's E R I C Y A K E S. Best place to kind of get in touch with me and follow what I'm doing. Sweet. Well, thanks for coming on. I think this is great. Yeah, man, it was a blast. Thanks for having me.